0: We will jump back into Proverbs after our hiatus, just two weeks, but it feels like longer than that, doesn't it? I don't know why. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Alright, if you'll open to Proverbs chapter 11, you'll see that we are in the middle of this section that spans the whole of chapter 11, a rough title fitting title righteous behavior so kind of a focus on deeds that flow forth from the righteousness of being in right relationship to God we've talked about the twofold nature of that before of course he imputes righteousness to us this is true he also sends us his Holy Spirit so that there is a new righteousness within our hearts even as we believe that is a miracle And a fruit of this renewal. So, if we look at chapter 11, I did want to maybe backtrack just a little. Because as I was looking at this again, I thought that this would be a nice little run-up. But also give us a little more explanation. So, we had looked at um, 16, 17, 18 last week of chapter 11. And again, 18, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. So we had talked about the rewards and how important that is for us to understand that the Lord sees, that the Lord cares, that the Lord rewards in this life and in that which is to come because it fights the nihilism of our age. That nothing is worth doing, that nothing has any meaning, that nothing has any value. Why would you bother going against the grain if all you're going to get is lumps and suffering? Why would you bother making a stand if all you're going to do is get beat up and knocked down? And the answer is because the Lord sees and promises to reward in this life and in that which is to come. So that can keep us from nihilism. That can keep us from despair and other kinds of great shame and vice. All right. Then 19 um, is a tricky translation. The ESV has it quite dynamic. Woodenly, it would be as righteousness to life. So as righteousness leads to life. um, He who pursues evil to death. So that would be a very wooden translation. Um, Righteousness is the path of life and leads to life. And evil or wickedness is the path of death that leads to death. So the ESV renders 19, whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live. Is that a bad translation? I prefer the more wooden. But he who pursues evil will die. All right, so we've got the two paths motif coming up in that. And then I think we're, if we're not already, maybe we are certainly now at verse 20 into the new material. Okay, those of crooked heart, the word crooked can also mean perverse, are an abomination to the Lord. Now, notice it's not merely the crooked heart or what flows from the crooked heart, but it's the person (laughs) we have kind of used this God hates the sin but loves the sinner and in whatever ways that might be true or whatever ways we could describe that as being true it's not universally true and the Bible frequently speaks in a different way analogous to the way Jesus speaks where a bad tree bears bad fruit and you despise a bad tree. You want to uproot it and give its soil to a good tree that's going to bear good fruit. Okay, so that's the first thing for us to recognize, is this biblical category and biblical way of speaking where it is those, namely those people of a perverse or crooked heart, are an abomination to the Lord. But those, again, those people, of blameless ways are his delight. This idea of delight carries on in at least three uh, other verses here in short proximity. But again, this ties in with the idea of walking in the way that leads to life and sowing righteousness, knowing that because God is good and because God sees, he will reward. So likewise then, those of blameless ways are his delight. And you recall, we've talked some about blamelessness as being distinct from sinlessness. One can confess, I am a poor, miserable sinner, and still be blameless. And there is even a a little bit of a finer distinction that can be made, and should be made from time to time, when it's fitting, in regard to blamelessness. There is a kind of blamelessness that can be restored, and there is a kind of blamelessness that cannot be restored. Okay. So uh, what is a kind of blamelessness that cannot be restored? Well, if you're the church treasurer and you embezzled $100,000, nobody's going to say, well, since we forgive you, here's your job back. That's a kind of blamelessness that can't be restored. Okay. The damage has been done, and it can't be undone. But there are other kinds of blamelessness that we can fall into that if we repent, we can be restored. So we aspire to conduct ourselves sinlessly, to be sure. Remember what John writes in his epistle? I write these things to you that you may not sin. So we aspire toward sinlessness. Recognizing that we daily fall short of the glory of God, we are... In a secondary sense, then, aspiring to conduct our vocations blamelessly. And that's a, that's a very important category. Again, I've mentioned this probably like three or four weeks in a row. You're probably tired of it. Sorry. We will move on. But I do point that out here, then, that the, um, those of blameless ways. It's a different kind of person. You can see here that an unbeliever and a believer are two very different kinds of people, as different as darkness is to light. So, one who does not believe or trust in God, trusts in himself, has a perverse and crooked heart, makes himself an abomination to God. But those who do trust in the Lord walk in blameless ways and are his delight. We don't talk enough about that, I think, in the church. What, when you wake up to do it's like, okay, what do, I, what do I intend to accomplish with my day? What if you had this general perspective? I want to delight the Lord. Is that self-righteousness? No. It's delightful to the Lord that I trust that he has justified me by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. That is delightful to the Lord that I believe in that. You see? So you can't escape it. As soon as you have faith, in justification by grace through faith apart from works, you're already delighting in the Lord. And so everything that flows forth from that faith then is a delight to the Lord. So... The Lord is pleased to have us as his children always. You can think of the father with the prodigal, that even when the prodigal goes completely astray, apostatizes, is the father pleased that he's gone astray? Is the father pleased that he's apostatized, that he's left the house, that he's squandered this inheritance? No, the father isn't pleased with any of that. But does he remain pleased and delighted to have that boy as his son? Yes. Yes. Which is why the second he appears on the horizon, the Father's hiking up his robes, girding them up, and sprinting in a rather undignified fashion to embrace his son and love him. Okay, So there are these two kinds of delighting the Lord or being pleasing to God. One is grounded in justification, and that's given us freely in Christ Jesus, freely through our baptism. Secondary sense, though, is what imbues everything we do with meaning and purpose and worth. The little things that we do, even something so insignificant that you didn't even recall, like giving a cup of cold water is the example Jesus uses to a little child in his name. You will by no means lose your reward. So when it comes time to do something that is going to cost you, do not fear. Delight the Lord, not the world. Okay? So that's the kind of thing we're seeing here. A crooked and perverse heart is an abomination of the Lord. Those of blameless ways are his delight. Okay, we have a very similar contrast between these two kinds of people here in verse 21. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous, or the righteous one, will be delivered. So, contrasting not going unpunished, that is, will certainly be punished, with will be delivered. And notice here we have two different kinds of people. We have the evil person, one whom John would say someone who is of the world or of Satan. And then we have one who is of the righteous or of the righteous one, would be a fine translation. So, to be offspring of the Father, to be offspring of Christ, properly understood, over and against being an evil person, which is to be an offspring of the devil, to be a brood of the viper. So, this too we spoke on the last time we were together, and that is, the other side of the coin is taking delight in the fact that God sees, or, yeah, sorry, Taking delight in the fact that God sees and is delighted himself in the good fruit that you're bearing. And that has nothing to do with being self-righteous whatsoever. But then secondarily, the other thing we need to keep in mind is that God does see and God does punish wickedness. That's simply the other side of the coin. One of the things that can absolutely poison and embitter the soul, especially in our day and age, is when you watch the news or social media or you're scanning whatever your app is and you just see all this terrible, wretched stuff and you don't see God caring. You don't see the punishment of evil. Okay? So the scriptures tell you outright, God's lips to your ear, I've got this and they're not going to get away with it. So don't allow your heart to grow embittered. Don't allow your heart to grow cold. Least of all, don't engage in what they're engaging in, thinking that God does not see that mantra of fallen Israel before God punished it with Assyria and then later on Babylon. Okay, So two sides of the same coin is that God is just and God is gracious. He rewards and he punishes guard your heart believe and live accordingly this is the path of wisdom this is understanding you need the lord to tell you that because if you just use your eyes as i suggested a minute ago if you just use your reason you're not going to see it if you just use your eyes if you just use your reason you're gonna be like that psalmist i think it's psalm 73 we took a look at who during the first half is like i don't understand it why do the evil prosper Why don't they seem to have any trouble? Why is it that myself and all the righteous people I know are suffering (laughs) and are having a hard go of it? And you might even start to think, like, what's the benefit of following the Lord if this is how it goes for those who are the Lord's? Okay, So that's the way of human sight, human reason. We need to be reassured by the Word of God. No, he has this. He is just. And not only is he just, but he will be merciful to us. Okay, so these two different people, again, a very parallel proverb to that found in 20. Be assured an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Let me pause there, see if you have any reflections. Seeing some, some sleepy faces. I hope I'm not doing that to you. So It's nice, it's warm, the coffee hasn't quite hit yet, it's a little too hot to chug. <laughs> yes, I see a hand here. One second, let's get you a microphone.
1: Um, earlier on, uh, when we were, were going over the passages that you were recapping from last time, mm. you mentioned, um, let's see, where was it? There was a, a passage about the righteous getting... Or I believe the way your your passage said a sure reward. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, that's the history. and the unrighteous get deceptive wages. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in my translation, it says he gets the righteous gets a true reward, mm-hmm. and there's a slight difference between those two. Mm-hmm. One suggests for sure you're going to get it; it's certainly yours. Yeah, and the other suggests you're going to get a reward. It may not seem like a reward to you. Mm-hmm. But no. it is. It's a true reward. It's not some phony baloney reward like the deceptive wages of the unrighteous.
0: Uh, uh, I think there's enough ambiguity in the text there to take either or. Um, and then I think the way you're taking it, you know, maybe goes maybe goes one step beyond the text. But I think it's fine. Um, yeah, I don't have any issue with that. There and that tension runs all the way through the proverbs, doesn't it? Where in some ways it 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 promises the righteous temporal blessings and that always gives us pause because of what we we're just talking about and because of the lament of the psalmist that wait a minute the righteous it seems like no good deed goes unpunished it seems like god's children have it hardest of all it seems like judgment begins at the house of the lord but then just continues with the house of the lord and then you've got these other proverbs and by the way you would put the large catechism in this category makes us real uncomfortable, because the large catechism promises all kinds of temporal and eternal blessings to those who keep the commandments. So there is a tension there, and I think where you're at is you're saying, so what is that temporal blessing? Because it may not be what we, tainted by sin as we are, would consider a blessing, right? And maybe just to drive that point one step further this is where we as christians are uniquely positioned to see the afflictions with which god afflicts us the crosses that he sets upon us as blessings oh goody i lost all my money in the stock market that is that a blessing no that's not a blessing i'd prefer for that not to happen what blessing did he give you He had money to begin with, that's true. And he gave that. That kind of stings that maybe you were a bad steward of it. Exactly. You start to realize, what have I to do with that? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I'm still the Lord's, so he still provides. I'm, I'm no richer, no poorer. <laughs> what, what hold does mammon have upon me? And if I've lost that, I think that this is kind of a benefit of Christians that suffer cataclysmic events too, like floods or fires that wipe out all your possessions, especially your sentimental possessions as you start to go. I mean, a Christian will come out of that and be like, well, it was all going away anyway. (laughs) Or I'm going away, and that stuff will soon enough go away. Many of you in this room have had that experience where you're digging through photos of your parents or your grandparents, and you're like... These were cherished photos of cherished people. I have no idea who they are. And it's lost. And you start to reflect and you realize, well, that's true for all the photos I have. And for all the people. So what does the Lord do in doing these very painful surgical cuts? These crosses are afflictions. It's a great blessing in it sets us free, grants us wisdom, causes us to see with our eyes, in a sense, a spiritual perception is what I'm talking about, but a spiritual sight, what we otherwise just sort of believed in the abstract. So, anyway, thank you for that. Did you have a follow-up, or...? No, that's good. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It invites these reflections, the Proverbs do, so thank you for that. Uh,
1: well, I guess maybe there is one follow-up, and that is, okay. there is the difference in the translations. Does, is there anything in the... Oh.
0: In the Hebrew, it's, um, it's, yeah, ambiguous. it's ambiguous. Yeah. The Jews, mm-hmm. So
1: either way, mm-hmm. the translators just preserve the an- ambiguity. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, and these are, I mean, the next, as I just pointed out, the next verse is like even more kind of wildly translated. I, you know, you're always going from like sort of a wooden literalistic, um, which doesn't always, um, which gets all the words right, but doesn't maybe communicate the meaning versus a dynamic, which really tries to get the meaning, but sometimes has to lose the words in order to do so. That's like the cross of the interpreter. How do you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and different, different uh, translations have either more of a wooden literalistic or a more dynamic, yeah. Then you go way off the rails on something like the message. You know, it's like, well, where did that come from? You know. But yeah, that's, it just gives you the scope and the spectrum. There's enough ambiguity <clears throat> particularly in those two verses um, to to kind of do a lot of a lot of uh, meditation come to some right conclusions different ways yep please
1: don 't ask me why but i 've been kind of studying the addiction of gambling lately <laughs> 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 but really we 're all gambling. All yeah, the time, right? You know, we, we can lose everything in one one throw of the dice, and uh, yet yeah, we're blessed all the time when when it comes easy, and then you know it's
0: weird. So just <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's a fun reflection. Yeah. it's a fun reflection. We, yeah, when you start to get into the just sort of like an a, at a, an epistemological level, like how you know what you know. There's a lot of things. And I think, I mean, this is cheapening it and oversimplifying it, but you've heard of Pascal's wager. It's essentially that principle, the idea of like, okay, given all the probabilities and potentialities, where would you be be wisest to throw your faith, to cast your dice? Yeah, (laughs) right? So... But then you, you realize, I mean, in, and I think, the, I think a good, safe place to meditate on those themes would be like, um, like uh, uh, Ecclesiastes. Sorry, I'm stumbling around here. Because Ecclesiastes is like, okay, apply all the wisdom you have, all the experience, all the knowledge of probabilities, everything, and make your decision. You still don't know how it's going to turn out. So you're in a sense and trusting yourself gambling in great big you know quotations here yeah yeah so thank you for that there's clearly a, a gambling that's like greed based frivolous uh, bad stewardship and that's what's denounced as the sin but in regard but at a deeper level what's really at root is the fact that we can never be certain the Lord is the only one that can be certain we have to entrust ourselves to him. You know? Please. Yeah, based on what
1: you just said, um, it's definitely here, we focus on ourselves. But it's everything is so well planned and so well directed that um, you know, if we focus Purpose and his plan. And we're very well fitting to every single step or every day that we live for him. And for his plan that he's and we are there. Uh, otherwise, you know, the older we get the more miserable we get to that we are losing everything, we're losing our health, we're losing our ability of do things or mental
0: and everything. We're losing everything from this world. Mm-hmm. You Yeah. so much after all. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, when the devil tempts Eve in the garden, uh, the first thing he says is to the effect, did God really say? Isn't that correct? Mm-hmm. And then after that, he follows that up by saying, because um, she responds, well, we shouldn't... Uh, eat it, we shouldn't even touch it, or we're going to die. And he responds, you will not surely die. So the two things he, he asks, and I think this is God delivering a punch in the face to Satan, the two things that he asks, did God really say, and then he asserts that God is a liar. The, the nature of faith that your comment just drew out is that God, and this is the punch in the face, is that God has reversed that magnificently. The very first question we should say is, did God say? And if he said, then we should say, does God lie? And that is then the certainty that I think you're talking about that grounds us. If God has said it, and he does not lie... What you've just done with that little exercise is you've stripped Satan of all his toeholds and grip points where he can bring in the question of doubt. Maybe you don't, didn't bear enough fruit. Maybe you weren't really a good tree. Maybe you didn't have enough faith. Maybe your faith was a false faith. Maybe it's all hypocrisy. Maybe it's all delusion. Maybe you're going to be one that, to whom the Lord says, I never knew you even when you call upon him. Okay? So Satan loves to claw and find toeholds and little grip points, but the place where he can't, where his little claws just go scaling down the, down the hill of the abyss, or down the cliff of the abyss, is in those two points. Did God say? Does God lie? As that fully takes out of the equation, like my level of faith, my level of sanctification, my level of hypocrisy, it's all just moot. I mean, for the sake of it, concede it all. Who cares? The real point, of course, this is faith. That's the irony. It's faith making this statement. It's faith making this claim. But the point is that God has said and does not lie. And then that becomes of the utmost importance, as you pointed out, because as life goes along, you know, the first half of life is like you're gaining. And then the second half of life is you start losing. (laughs) So... Every single human life is lived under that statement of Job. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the exercise. Now, it's easy in the first half of the life to bless God. Because it's just good stuff. I mean, By and large, the good outweighs the... I can tell that I've already tipped over the hill, as they say because my perception changed from like what good thing is coming next to oh gosh what disaster is going to befall us next <laughs> you know used to be you'd go to the dentist and you kind of look forward to it why? They're going to give you a little toy. They're going to tell you nice job, you're cavity free, it's all great. Good job. Keep it up. Now you go to the dentist and you're like, "What are they going to find? How much is it going to cost?" <laughs> that's just a microcosm for all the rest of life, isn't it? So the whole first half of life is learning to trust the Lord who provides for your spiritual and bodily needs, who sets before you hope and all kinds of excitement of what's to come. And then the second half of life is trusting Him when He starts removing those things one by one. And you return to the place from which you began, but you know it for the first time, as T.S. Eliot says, And there's a beauty in that, but there's a fullness of trust. There's a growth and a maturity in that, that you become okay with having your life stripped away from you piece by piece. And in fact, more than okay, because as you retain the faith, difficult as it may be, I'm not minimizing it in the least. I mean, this is a struggle of all struggles. Cosmic, epic warfare through which we conquer and overcome, to use the language of john 's epistle and john 's revelation okay it 's a big deal it 's hard and wonderful and glorious and magnificent work having faith in the face of all these contrary things but that as you as you progress in that and as you experience that um, you are being conformed into the image of christ the crucified that 's the ultimate point it 's not that god 's like masochistic, or needs to prove to himself your love or your commitment or the trueness of your faith or anything like that. What's happening on that, the backside of life, and again, I'm speaking generally as the Proverbs do, sometimes that happens on the front side of your life, okay? But on the backside of your life, what's happening is you're being stripped one thing after another, but retaining your faith in God is you're being crucified. Whoever would follow me must Take up his cross. It's just, what does your crucifixion look like? Yours is probably gonna look different than mine, but that's what it is. And retaining the faith while you're being crucified, I mean, it, think of this. I mean, the essence of the depth and extreme, unspeakable profundity is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that prayer doesn't belong exclusively to Christ even though it is entirely his, and in its fullness is his and his alone. But it's also David's prayer. And it's also the church's prayer. Believing Israel and believing Jew and Gentile today. And so, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is to a lesser degree than Christ, obviously, but is the prayer of each one of us. As God strips everything away, and finally, ultimately, even life itself. But how does that phrase begin? My God, my God, though you are doing this to me, though I don't understand it and question the wisdom of it and wish it wasn't this way, you are still and always and ever my God. That's faith unto the end. That's what I mean by it being beautiful and glorious, and it's unavoidable. It's all of us. In fact, the Book of Concord, you know, those stodgy German Lutherans, who happen to be like the most brilliant theologians, literally on the on the face of the planet. um, We should take great pride in that. I mean, it's just astounding. But they say, and of course, they're taking this from statements Saint Paul makes in the Book of Romans, the Epistle of Romans. That God, before the foundation of the world, not only chose you in Christ Jesus, but chose exactly what manner of crosses and afflictions he was going to lay upon you in order to conform you in your own unique, specific way into the image of Christ and the glory of Christ that he would have for you. That's an astounding statement. It's... It's one that you wrestle with, but it's one that simultaneously gives beautiful peace, deepest possible peace, because you realize that there's really no accidents, not even those bad things, that these were chosen, these were planned, and there's a kind of wisdom and purpose behind it that's deeper than the wisdom and purpose of fallen man. I mean, how many of us would choose suffering? How many of us would choose to have a cross? It's, rid- it's ridiculous. We would all choose. I mean, I, I wake up in the morning, I want exactly zero suffering um, that, for the rest of that day. Uh, but God has better things in mind. And he gives us things that we would never even ask for, that we don't even want. And that's the irony. But They're better for us. So it's kind of, it's analogous in a sense to, you know, as a father, or a mother, you give your kids all kinds of things that they don't want. But you do that because ultimately it's, better for them. And they eventually come to appreciate it, usually, sometimes, maybe not guaranteed. But that'll be the same way as we look upon our lives and the struggles we had here in this life, is we'll say, I see your wisdom. I see your fatherly goodness. I see your care. I see your chastisement and your discipline. Which, by the way, um, I'm not just riffing here. We're coming up on this. In fact, this is how this section ends. Uh, Chapter 11 ends with this exact thought. Um, Just, you know, sometimes you buy a book and you open it up and look at the very last line. Maybe ruin it for yourself, but if you look at the very last line of this section, or is it the very first line of the next section? I think it's kind of both. Look at 12.1 as they actually have it. Whoever loves... Discipline, musar, which is chastening or correction. I mean, how many kids love to be chastened or corrected? (laughs) Whoever loves chastening or correction loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof, talkahat, which is the same rebuke or correction, he who hates rebuke or correction is stupid. Which is a pretty dynamic translation. I mean, it's fine. (laughs) fine. Baar, which has which has also this delightful semantic uh, idea of um, being burning or kindled, so um, being consumed. So he who hates reproof, I don't know. This is probably putting a little too much on it. He who hates reproof is already in hell. He doesn't even know it. He's stupid which is really the essence of hell. Hell's a really stupid place, filled with really stupid people and really stupid angels. So, whoever loves chastening or correction loves knowledge. We don't love it by nature. But the new man can embrace it because the new man sees his identity in Christ who embraces chastening, who embraces discipline. Okay, so back to, um, back to chapter 11 where we left off. <laughs> Alright, we're coming up on... Yeah, it is. It's time. Verse 22. One of the most memorable Proverbs. <laughs> like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman <laughs> without ta'am, without discretion, without taste, without judgment. All of those things are true. They all share a semantic domain. So, is a gold ring in a pig's snout a fitting thing? No. A pig is an unclean animal. A pig wallows in its own manure all day. Are you going to put a golden ring in its snout? No. How unfitting. Likewise is the unfitness of having a beautiful exterior and an ugly interior. As ridiculous as a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without a beautiful soul. A beautiful woman without ta'am, discretion, taste, judgment, the wisdom of God within her. That's good. I might get that crocheted on a pillow. <laughs> Sell that on my Christian website. <laughs> i <I'm> just teasing. <laughs> Okay, next Proverb 23, the desire of the righteous ends only in good, or is only good. So I think that that's a better rendering. I mean, even though both are true, the desire of the righteous is only good. Like, that's kind of the good tree bearing good fruit, the properly ordered desire. The expectation of the wicked in wrath. So whatever the, whatever the wicked person expects, hopes for, longs for, the ending is wrath. I think that's the sentiment. And then the desire of, so what the righteous desires, hope for, hopes for, looks forward to, is good and ends in good. I think that, yeah, I think that that's the sense of this thing. So there is a desire within us that is unfulfilled and intentionally so. I can't remember right this second. I can't believe I can't remember. But I think it's via Peter craved, And I think he quotes C.S. Lewis to this effect. I think. That's what I'm not certain of. It's just not my idea. But this idea that if you have godly desires within you that aren't met this side of heaven let's say to make it easy they point to things that will be granted on that side it's a telltale sign now that i think about it pascal argues this way too in his pensées uh he argues this way too that so um well so does gerhard um so does Johann gerhard remember our series on the desire for eternal life and he riffs on all this, Let all the desires we have for everything from like good and wholesome government, to good friends, to a good reputation, to like the right balance of life and work. And he, go, he catalogs all these various good, godly desires that are seldom, if only temporarily, met in this life. And he points to that being you know, an impetus that drives us on to that life which is to come, because in that life which is to come, all of these things will be fulfilled. It's a beautiful thought. And now that I think about just really rich, really richly attributed thought in the Western church. So I think that that is a fair meditation when we think of the desire of the righteous. Like, what are these desires? Godly desires that are unmet in this life will be met, are there to lead us because they will be met in that next life, which is to come. Okay, how about 24? One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Sometimes people say you can't outgive God, and I think that that's a fair, a fair uh, translation. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Okay, and that's true whether you know in in terms of like actual balance in your checkbook. I have no doubt about that, or whether it's also um, a deeper richness, true spiritual treasures, but. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. I mean, this is counterintuitive, deeply mysterious, and wonderful because God's in control, not our reason and not pragmatism. I mean, pragmatism says, like, hey, I've got limited resources, and if I start distributing them, that my resources are going to get less. God says, yeah, no, try it. <laughs> And the flip side of that is, oh, I'm not going to have enough. I've got to hold on to every last thing I have. You know? And God says, really? The tighter you grip, the more it's going to slip through your fingers and you won't have it. That's a wonderful kind of truth. And again, we can meditate on this lengthily. I, I won't do it. But you know, this one invites pondering in terms of um, temporal realities and temporal Wealth, but then also like spiritual realities, spiritual wealth. Um, Maybe earthly and heavenly would be a better distinction, earthly and spiritual. Yeah, it certainly invites um, some deeper meditation. But what a delightful proverb, what a delightful promise. And it really kind of, this idea that there's not enough. I think that this is, you know, this is really at at root. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? Hey, what have, you got? what have we got to feed them? <laughs> Only these two fish and five loaves of bread. It's not enough. And God's like, you know, Christ is like, yeah, okay, watch this. Plenty. So, you know, and that's true too, I think. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll leave that alone. So I commend that one to you. That's a good one. Along with the gold ring and a pig snout. How can you forget? Okay, 25. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. So very similar. Um, and, and maybe more literalistically, the soul that brings blessing, the soul that blesses. So putting out Gains. So you know this because when you serve people, you feel as if you yourself have somehow been served. You know this because if you teach people, you know that you yourself have somehow been taught more deeply than if you just learned it. The, it is, this is at the root of, we don't know where this quote can, comes from, but St. Paul quotes Jesus, it doesn't show up in the Gospels, as saying it is more blessed to give than to receive this is the secret nature of that it's not just tongue-in-cheek it's in the performance of the act you get back more than you're giving that's always true that's a guarantee okay so yeah not only is it not only like is it not this zero-sum thing of like well i'm not going to have enough it's hey the more you give out the more you're going to have to give out um, but it's also this idea of, uh, you know, as you seek to bless others, you yourself are going to be blessed. That's, the, that's sort of God's economy. I use that really loosely, but God's economy within his kingdom. That's why, like, all theology is plagiarism, and it's great. People say, hey, that was really smart. Can I use that? <laughs> Where do you think I got it from? It's the scriptures of the church or some church father I've forgotten. I mean, that, it's just wonderful. There's never, like too little there's always more than enough and the more we give the more we get it's a glorious reality of christ church okay and then obviously the way of the world is scrambling around and trying to carve out your piece and holding on to it as tight as you can and the more you try it like slips through your fingers i remember coming home like when i was 15 and had my first job a taco shop in a mall what a glorious start And I was like, okay, what are... Hey, Dad, would you look at my paycheck? What are all these deductions? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, let me tell you about those. Not only do you have to work to earn your money, then you have to work to keep your money. So the government and everyone else will try to strip it away as fast as you earn it. You have to fight to... Keep it, and that little microcosm gets writ large, and that's the way of the world. Is you're trying to hold on while everybody's taking everything away. It's just slipping through your fingers. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, great, you got a coupon on the sandwich, and then on your way there, you hit a light pole. <laughs> it's like the way life works. Ah, great, got a got $200 off my dental work only to uh, ram my car into the curb and now I've got a $400 front end repair. So, I mean, that's the way the world works. It's just, just always irritating. As soon as you feel like you're a little ahead, you're not anymore. And so I think, I think that, I mean, this is the blessed, beautiful vision of that is like God's got more for you and his kingdom and his economy. Okay, so... Then twenty-eight continues the theme. Whoever, wait a minute, did I skip? Did I skip twenty-seven or did I skip more? What did I do? My eye jumped. Whoever blings, oh yeah, blessings. That's twenty-five. Okay, twenty-six. The people. No, wait, I didn't do watering. How far? How far did my eye skip? You were on the second part of twenty-four. I was on the second part of twenty-four. Thank you. One gives freely. Yet grows all the richer, another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. Yeah, that counterintuitive way. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Isn't that glorious? So, to. And you've got this idea that emerges throughout chapter 11 that it's not just, you know about you and God, but then it also is about those around you. And so, as you're taking care of others, the Lord will take care of you. As you're dispersing yourself, the Lord will strengthen you. As you're watering others, you yourself will be watered by the Lord. That's true in all our vocations. K26, the people curse him who holds back grain, But a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. So not even gives it, just sells it. He's being charitable and selling it for a, I mean, here, a fair price is assumed. The idea of like distributing what you have for the sake of others carries with it a blessing. But a selfish holding back, you know, just in case. Have you ever noticed how that just in case like keeps growing? You got to have insurance, just in case. Okay, you got to have what do they say these days? Like six months of savings, just in case. Well, wouldn't it be better if you had a year, just in case? You got to invest. How much are they saying? Like twenty percent? Better do twenty five, just in case. And you know that just in case continues to grow and grow and grow. As you try to shore up yourself from potential losses or disasters, and the more you do that, the more you distribute what God has given you, and no longer have it. And that's the other irritating thing about this world: you get a house, and you got to get a fence for your house, and you got to get a guard to protect that. You got to get a guard dog to protect that, and you got to get. You start to accumulate nice things. Now you got to get an alarm system, and it just never stops. Just More and more money spent to try to do what? Protect and keep money. Do you see the irony? (laughs) So there's, yeah, we all experience this to one degree or another. Okay, I don't know. Lots of, I think lots of fun meditations for us, especially because we're in such an affluent, um, you know, American society here in the 21st century—a pretty affluent society—and. Really kind of this ancient wisdom, picking at and poking holes at what we take for granted. Okay, 27, whoever diligently seeks good finds favor. Now, this is the idea of delight. That's the same word back in 20. Those of blameless ways are Yahweh's delight. Here, whoever diligently seeks for good or seeks good... I know it says, Seeks favor, seeks delight. That's fine, but finds is better. So to diligently seek good, like, and this is what Jesus is getting after when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God. All the other stuff you need will be added to you. This is the true treasure. And we can't, like, I mean, I don't know. It's very foolish to cut yourself off from that active language that Jesus employs, that Solomon employs, that all of the scriptures employ. There is something to be sought and pursued, strived for. Whoever diligently seeks good finds delight, finds God's delight. But evil comes to him who searches for it, it being evil. Search for evil, you're going to find it. Lo and behold... I don't know, it's kind of a dumb thing. It, affla- it, it, it like plagues young people who are like, like when you go out with your friends, it's been so long since I've done this and since I've been young, you have to pardon me if this is a little inaccurate, but when you go out with your friends on a Friday or Saturday night, especially when you get to that age where there might be like alcohol or other things involved, stop and ask yourself like, what am I trying to accomplish? Because if you ask that introspective question, like, how do I hope this night ends? It's pretty darn telling meditation. And if you are seeking evil, or if you're not dedicated, diligent in pursuing good, guess where you're going to drift into? Evil, and lo and behold, you're going to find it. (laughs) So when when kids just kind of, I don't know, let's see where it takes me. Guess where it's going to take you? Yeah. All right. So, some really good practical wisdom there. And I think we're out of time. Let's pick up at uh, 28. We'll kind of continue this meditation and see it through next week. The Lord be with you.